Hello and welcome to the Mammal Podcast. I'm your host, David Wu, and today's guest is Dr. Vanita Agarwala, a general partner at A16Z, physician, adjunct clinical professor at Stanford, previously at Google Ventures, Flatiron Health, and Harvard Medical School, and the Broad Institute, where she got her MD, PhD. I had so much fun recording this interview with Dr. Agarwala. She is a luminary figure in the mammal space and has had a very inspiring career and story. She's also a super cool person. I hope you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Vanita Agarwala. Uh, she's a general partner at A16Z, physician, adjunct clinical professor at Stanford, previously at Google Ventures, Flatiron Health, and Harvard Medical School, and the Broad Institute, where she got her MD, PhD. So our first question today that we ask every guest, Vanita, is uh, can you tell us about your path and how you came to the intersection of medicine and machine learning? Of course, and thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I uh, I mainly love the the mammal concept. Is that how you say it, mammal? Yeah, mammal. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Um, very creative. Great. Um, great to be having more conversations with people interested at this intersection. And I hope for folks listening, um, uh, you you hear something today that makes that sparks something in you to to potentially contribute to this particular interface of medicine and machine learning. It's vast, it's exciting, and I think you know there'll be a lot that happens here over the next decade. Um, I myself, uh, I grew up in State College, Pennsylvania, in a um, college town, and was kind of equal parts addicted to um, biology, medicine, and math. To be, you know, is another interpretation of mammal. Uh, sort of a lot of folks at this interface just start out being generally interested in quantitative approaches and think about where they can apply them and get attracted to the concept of improving human health. And that starting from that very 10,000 foot view um, is kind of how I started noodling on ways to bring a mathematical background to biology. I actually did my first set of um, kind of wet lab work in a great lab at Penn State focused on virology, but was kind of you know, came away sort of frustrated that everything felt pretty, um, you know, that progress was, was seemed slow at times that it was a, you know, that we didn't learn that much from every iteration um, in a wet lab context. Sometimes it felt like we were throwing darts to, you know, even if it was something as simple as cloning, we were just doing as much of it as possible and hoping we got a plasmid out the other end and we didn't get a chance to, to really, um, you know, learn a rule that could be re repeatedly applied to make a process better or more efficient or more efficacious. And so, um, and at the same time, I think as probably many of your listeners had the experience of, you know, um, in high school, college, kind of feeling like, you know, quantitative fields were fun. Math classes were fun. Physics classes were fun. And so, how could you bring those fields together to make things to make things better? And so, um, you know, at the time that I came out to Stanford for college, computation was very much kind of growing rapidly, and the number of opportunities for collection, storage, and analysis of big data sets in health in biology were really growing. Um, I ran into Vijay Pandey, who had actually. Uh, was a professor at Stanford, now, um, you know, at Andreessen Horowitz, one of my partners here, started our group here, um, 
And he was setting up this fascinating system called Folding at Home, which was to use computation across people's laptops and phones to harness that energy for um, protein folding problems. And so the way I really fell into this interface was really by learning about a lot of different use cases that were exciting and then um, trying to do research uh, at a couple, you know, example interfaces myself. I'm curious, when you were a medical student, did you envision uh, your current career path? Um, not, I would say not my exact current career path, but um, aspirationally, I very much wanted to contribute to the development of um, actually changing the standard of care. And I didn't know exactly how that would happen. Um, I, I perceived that it could happen by applying basic science research to translational, you know, translational medicine and the development of new therapies. I perceived that it could happen through better diagnostics. Um, my PhD training was in the field of genetics and genomics, and we were always kind of, I think most people in that field in the early 2000s were hoping that this might produce better patient identification, earlier detection of disease, and so on, or um, through better care delivery um, and systems that allow care teams to function more intelligently. And I, I didn't have a clear um, sense of which of those domains I might spend most time in. And I'm really excited now to, to have the opportunity to explore new technologies in sort of all three of those areas. Yeah, it seems like uh, at A16Z, actually I was wondering, could you tell us more about A16Z and kind of like what, what, you, what you guys do? Because um, I feel like it, it probably does incorporate all of those fields that you just talked about, right? Yeah, so A16Z is a venture fund. That means we back um, very early stage entrepreneurs when they want to start a company, um, in our case, working in the space of bio and health. Um, the, um, the, the core thesis on which A16Z was founded was actually um, this idea, you know, about 14 years ago now, I think, that software is eating the world. And that's what our founders kind of proclaimed. And that's what you'll find if you kind of read about A16Z, um, which stands for Andreessen Horowitz, um, named for the founders of the firm. And they said, look, you know, software is just, is just coming for everything we do. The way that we, from the way that we connect with friends to the way that we, you know, um, uh, you know, order goods and services to the way that we conduct ourselves in a, in a business workplace, to the way that we optimize our productivity, to the way that we do financial transactions, like in every part of the world, software is going to have a big impact. And, um, you know, along the way, we kind of firmed up our conviction that software was, had the potential to have the same degree of impact in healthcare too, and in medicine. And, you know, the, you know, the adoption of the EMR in medicine feels like it's just scratching the surface of what software could do. You know, computerized order entry is like, feels like table stakes, right, in 2022, relative to all the other ways in which we're using software. And so we came away with a pretty strong conviction that software engineering computation could have a huge impact on discovery in biology, as well as care delivery. Um, in the medical world. And so that's kind of um, the Andreessen Horowitz Biohealth Fund 
Um, we're a team of about 10 folks um, who are looking for exciting investments and opportunities to work with founders to do exactly that, bring software and engineering um, to medicine. Oh, cool. That's, wow. Uh, I was wondering, what are some exciting applications of, of machine learning you've seen in the medical field? Um, so many. So actually, one of our um, one of the founders that we had the great fortune of backing, Daphne Kohler, who is a computer science machine learning faculty member at Stanford for many years, she now runs a company called Incitro. I was recently actually chatting with her, and she said, "You know, I think machine learning is going to be like computers. You can't say that machine learning alone, without scientists, <laughs> will solve anything." Um, or any problem, but I, you know, her perception was that machine learning may become as embedded in so much of what we do that maybe it will feel like computer technology. It will feel like table stakes. Like, of course, we have to, if we have a data set, of course, we will try to learn from it um, using a machine learning approach. Or, of course, we will factor in what type of experiment we should run that would make it most amenable to subsequent machine learning, or you know, it will just become a core part of the workflow, but it, it, it cannot be a standalone technology. And so that's kind of how, how I see applications of machine learning in medicine too. It's that you know, I don't think machine learning replaces doctors. I don't think machine learning you know, can invent drugs on its own. But I think you know, for those of you who are medical students, you'll identify with kind of the feeling that you see a patient in front of you and you know, like a similar patient has to have walked through the door so many times, mm. not just at the hospital where you are, but at hospitals all over the US and at hospitals all over the world. And how could it not be the case that we tap into some of that prior knowledge? And we do today to some extent, we have published clinical trials and settings in which data is collected and we learn from that. And as a medical student, you might have cited a case report in writing your note about a patient and things like that. So we try our best to do that, but it's not systematized. And it's not the case that every patient who walks in the door tomorrow, when I go see my doctor, I know that my data will be used to better the care of the next patient who walks in the door, you know, three months from now. That's just not the way our healthcare system works. And so I think one of the most exciting areas for application of machine learning is to enable care teams to tap into knowledge on a more continuous basis. And so, you know, like Daphne said, that's not that machine learning is going to deliver the care. Great doctors, nurses, and care teams are, but couldn't we empower them to make better decisions, smarter decisions, learn from past data um, when they're taking care of the patient in front of them? Um, and it's not just learn from past data, it's learn from past and not just learn from past data that's kind of superficial in a sense, you know, at, at the high level of kind of matching a patient to their outcomes. But what if we could learn about their biology? What if we could study their pathology and their radiology and their lab tests and really learn something that humans can't learn on their own? And that's kind of, to me, the most exciting applications of machine learning are learning things that humans can't learn simply. That's, that's very mind-blowing. I really like that, that perspective um, that you shared. And it kind of makes me think about, you know, yesterday I had a, a couple telehealth visits or, you know, seeing patients over Zoom. 
or you know the and then it, I was thinking like wow like not only did someone have to invent a camera they had to invent the internet they had to invent computers you know kind of all of these like different disparate kinds of technologies had to come together to deliver this this care experience and it, it actually went really well I was like wow telehealth is like you know, people like to say, oh, it's not the same, but it's actually very convenient. And I, I do think many patients yeah, really like it. it and it's really changed medicine. And, you know, maybe in the future, machine learning will just be kind of like another component of um, the care we provide. Uh, you know, not like it won't right. replace it, but right. it'll just be like a component of it. Another source of data, right? Yeah. Just like you have, just like you have yesterday's lab results, maybe you'll also have, you know, an insight if applicable based on analyzing historical patient data or something like that, you know, is, is something that's exciting to think about. Um, or maybe some of the diagnostics you order aren't gonna be lab tests. <clears throat> maybe we'll mm -hmm. order a digital diagnostic that looks at a patient's pathology and picks out features that yeah. would be difficult for a human pathologist to, um, to act upon. And I guess even kind of, you know, zooming out, uh, I feel like the history of medicine is, is was more so like human learning where like we would learn through, you know, we would do these clinical trials or we would write these case reports and then we would change our management based off of that. But then we're, we're now it's like we're kind of augmenting that process of human learning by using, uh, you know, machine learning to like kind of go through much larger data sets and like kind of get these like deeper insights that maybe we would have missed. Um, or we just we just don't have kind of have yeah, the, the bandwidth to 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 get. Uh, I'm curious. Do you think? I think the key any... word you used is the key word you used is augmenting. I agree. Mm. Um, augmenting is very different than replacing, yeah. and augmenting is also very different than just making us more efficient. Sometimes people use the word augmenting to say, "Well, I'm going to I'm going to enable you to see three times as many patients." Well, I don't know if that's good, right? I don't know if that's what you want. I, just because telemedicine is great, that doesn't mean you want to see three times as many patients enabled by machine learning. But what you really wanna be able to do is actually offer a therapeutic plan or a diagnosis that is uniquely enabled by machine learning. And that's the kind of augmentation that I think is far more exciting than efficiency gains. Mm, yeah. um, do you think there are any unmet gaps right now? Uh, specifically, you know, like in, kind of in the, the medicine and machine. machine. Yeah, in, in medicine, yeah. Oh, many. Um, and there, there's a reason that you always have when there's something that seems so great is not yet available. You have to look for, well, what are the what are the unmet you know, gaps, to use your phrase, that are preventing something from getting adopted? And I think we don't know yet. There are a lot of open questions. We don't know yet how to assemble the right retrospective data sets. We don't know yet how, you know, how to do patient matching in a high fidelity way. We don't know yet. Um, what the prospective implications of implementing such tools are going to be that will take time to run those studies and understand, hey, in which situations did something change? Did it change for the better? Um, is there the possibility of over-reliance on a machine learning infrastructure? These are all open questions. You know, how do we make sure that we don't produce bias that harms subsets of patients? Um, how do we even get all the data we need in a structured format is a, mm. is a gap that doesn't exist, you know, that hasn't yeah. been solved yet in the pathology world. I talked about the idea of picking out features that, you know, a machine learning algorithm can see in an image that a human can't, but most pathology slides aren't digitized. So oh, we've got some yeah. like really big 
infrastructure needs, um, you know, that are that are real gaps, analysis needs, and then implementation, you know, uh, gaps that lots of startups, companies, health systems, hospitals, research groups are working on, but are not yet solved. Mm. Uh, I'm curious at A16Z, uh, do you got do you have any companies or stories that have been your favorite so far that you've worked with? Uh, lots of examples. I mentioned um, Daphne at Inzitro, who's built a really fascinating kind of set of infrastructure by which to perturb biology to take, let's say, cells or cell lines or other preclinical systems and ask, hey, if, if I expose that system to a large library of drugs or a large set of um, perturbations, what can I learn about the biology of the system when I go back and apply machine learning to that set of perturbations and, and phenotypic readouts. So I think that's a really, that's a really exciting um, way to reimagine components of, of drug discovery. Um, we work with a, um, a, a fabulous um, founder who's also a faculty member at Johns Hopkins, um, working at a company called Bayesian Health. Her name is Suchi Saria. She's actually kind of a leader in the mammal in the mammal interface. Um, <laughs> Thanks for using the word. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna make that word stick. Oh, She's sweet. working on um, uh, on inpatient uh, decision um, tools that can kind of augment and make care teams far more data driven than they really are today. And a great example of that is and that's something sort of that seems simple but is actually really hard early sepsis detection. You know, we all kind of, we know sepsis when we see it, we have criteria in med school, you learn what those criteria are and you're, you're waiting for those criteria to hit before you push antibiotics and fluids and you, you have a, we have a response system that we know works well, but we might be missing patients, right? Who might have, who might be slowly trending in that direction while they're in the hospital. And we don't have anybody who's ever practiced or been around inpatient care knows that it's not like, we have a, a, a sophisticated mechanism by which to track slow changes in patients or changes that might happen over the gradually over the course of a critical 24-hour period. You know, we're we're doing Q8 vitals or Q4 vitals and you know writing them down on sheets of paper and 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 kind of we 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 alert ourselves um, as often as we can. But it's it's um, it's pretty compelling to imagine that. Um, that all the data that's stored digitally might actually, you know, we might get some help in analyzing mm -hmm. it to be able to catch things like sepsis earlier. And so mm -hmm. she's building a, a whole suite of, of interesting research-based um, diagnostic products that could be that could be really impactful um, in clinical in the practice of, of clinical medicine. Um, and then, really, you know, to Daphne's point on kind of the the slow infusion of machine learning everywhere. There, are, I mean, we've invested in companies that are using machine learning to improve food supply and pick out fruit based on how likely it is to um, be going bad and oh, to wow. kind of figure out ways to retriage that fruit and redirect it and build systems and interventions to <laughs> help improve fruit. shelf life. Yeah, that's that's a, that's, a, that's a company called Appeal Biosciences, a really exciting company that is kind of bring, making the avocado supply chain better. For example, that's, um, that's so awesome. In, 
Yeah, companies doing this for small molecule development, like Genesis Therapeutics, companies doing this for antibody discovery, like Big Hat Biosciences, companies doing this for adenoviral vector design for gene therapy delivery, like Dino. And so it's really kind of a, it's it's become a, you know, and then lots of care delivery companies too for the for the health tech audience and the and you know those who are interested in the practice of clinical medicine. We are not good at triaging patients. Um, it's a very, very human dependent process. And there's a lot of disparity created by the difference in different patients' abilities to even access the healthcare system. Who can make it to an ER? Who can get an outpatient appointment on the same day? Who knows? Who's educated enough as a patient and a family to know when they should be reaching out mm. for help? Who's, who's taking medications properly to manage their side effects? And this is all so human without, you know, kind of data-driven intervention and risk stratification that there are a whole suite of companies that we now see using machine learning to better match patients to an intervention, to the right intervention at the right time. Wow. Uh, what do you look for in a potential company that you're considering investing in? Um, a lot of things, um, but first and foremost, I will say it's kind of at the wavelength that we're chatting about. It's important for us to feel like there's a transformative change that's possible here, that there's something that's really going to shift the standard of care, that whatever you're working on, whatever you're kind of contemplating building could improve the final outcome for a patient in a really substantial way, that's important. That's important for us to kind of work backwards from, from that North Star. It might be risky to get there, it might not work, but we sure have to believe that if it worked, it would be amazing. Mm. And so that really is kind of the number one criteria is, is understanding that, hey, in the scenario that this works out, what you're saying, mm -hmm. that's a world I wanna live in. That's and then, cool. Working backwards from that, we have to assess whether this particular team and this particular set of technology is well positioned to get to that goal. And well positioned is a sort of loaded phrase. It means does the team have the right background, the right, you know, set of experiences? Is the technology sufficiently different from what's been tried in the past? Who else? is competing in a given space? Are there regulations that we need to be aware of that could impact this company's ability to achieve that goal? You know, what's the commercial plan to get there? And so all of that goes into our, our evaluating whether a company uh, startup is, is um, well positioned to reach mm. that North Star. Wow. Uh, I'm also curious kind of about your personal path. And I was wondering, um, you know, how has mentorship shaped your path? Because I feel like you have a very unique path uh, not a lot of medical students kind of go down. I, I feel like, you know, us as students, we didn't, we don't even know that this is an option, you know? Um, so I'm kind of curious, like how, how have you walked your path? You know, how have people helped shape it? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, mentorship is, you know, I'm just, I'm infinitely grateful to several mentors along the way at key, key points in my career. And I'd, um, you know, I continue to really lean on mentors and hopefully, um, you know, pay it forward uh, to, to mentees as well. But, you know, I think, I think what a mentor does is kind of, at least for me, that's been most impactful 
is um, is help you have the confidence to explore, you know, whether something that you haven't done before is something that you want to do in the future. And that's that's sort of a specific realization that I've had over the last few years. You know, a lot of mentors and advisors can be really impactful by helping you take the next step on something you've done in the past. They can be helpful in you know, opening doors, writing recommendations, all, you know, the tactical stuff for sure. And that makes a big difference. And it is important to have a, a advisory and sort of network of mentors who are, who are keen to do that. But the most impactful thing that I've experienced is a mentor who says, I know you haven't done that before, X, whatever that may be, that could be starting a company, that could be um, working on a machine learning project when you haven't done machine learning before. Um, and they say, but I think you could do it. And I'm going to try to help you cross the bridge between having never done something and doing it for the first time. And I think as medical students, that's something that that's something that clinicians and training do all the time, right? Like you suddenly go from yeah. having never seen a patient to, to doing the first physical exam on the patient, and you go from you know having no idea how to use a scalpel to trying it on a on a on a real patient during your surgical rotation. And you go from having never ordered anything on behalf of a patient to doing that yeah, during your intern year as, when you're a resident for the first time. And so medicine is actually full of examples of having never done something and then like one fine day <laughs> being put in the situation where you have to do it. Yeah. And so you know, I think I, I, you know, medicine is actually sort of an interesting training to, um, in this world of doing things you've never done before and, and really look for mentors who do that. So for me, I had mentors like that all along the way, you know, in college, actually, my now partner, VJ Pandey, was a mentor to me in that light, encouraged me to start a company when I'd never done that before, encouraged me to write a thesis in a space I'd never worked on before. Um, at Cold Spring Harbor, I, I had a great research mentor who said, okay, you want to apply machine learning to transcription factor binding site prediction? Try it. We've never done it before and you've never done it before, but it's a, it's something worth trying because you're right. There are sequences that we might be able to learn from systematically. Um, my PhD advisor, David Altshuler, you know, supported, a, you know, a sort of uh, ambitious uh, modeling project that hadn't been done before. And, and then subsequently was a great source of support as I um, pursued opportunities in the health tech industry instead of going straight to residency. And so I really do think, look for people who, um, you know, who say that's okay that you haven't done that before. It's worth trying. Do you have advice for, for finding those kinds of supportive and mentors who can, you know, like push you like that? You know, it is important to just be willing to meet with a lot of people. Um, and to, to feel like you never know where the right mentors will come from. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I think a mentor can help provide the support for you to do something like that, take a personal and professional risk, so on. But the, the kind of fire does have to come from you. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I think it's, it's sort of about finding people who might help you access spaces and and work that you've never done before again to like take it back to the medical school analogy it's like if you know as a third year med student that you're interested in 
you know, breast cancer surgery. Well, that's something you've never done before, right? So you're going to have to go find a mentor and look for not just mentorship, but sponsorship. Mm. Who's going to help you, even though you haven't done anything in that field before, who's going to help you figure out how to chart your path there and help you figure out how you could do something different there and um, build an impactful career there and do research there and sort of you know, so it's, it's, there are a lot, medicine really does train you well to go find mentors that you may not know um, already, uh, but that's, um, usually you do have to have a little bit of a sense of which direction you'd like to explore. And I, I'm curious, have you ever experienced doubt along your path? Like kind of like, is this path the right path for me? Or do I want to do this? Um, because I feel like a lot of students, there, there's so many options available to us that you know, I feel like oftentimes it's like, oh, I'm not sure if this is the right thing I want to do or don't want to do this. Uh, have you experienced that? And kind of how did you um, kind of overcome it? Oh, 100%. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I've, I've definitely experienced doubt. Um, and I think what has helped is, you know, to kind of, um, actually, I'll share uh, my, my high school soccer coach had a phrase. And um, he said, which sort of stuck with me like for a really long time, but he said, when in doubt, sprint. <laughs> so we, it was a, it was a, it was like a motivating thing he used to tell our team. He said, look, like the, the worst thing you can do in a soccer match is like not know which direction to go and like kind of be still yeah. or, to, or you know, not kind of not even make a, make an attempt at, you know, facilitating a certain play or providing a certain defensive support or whatever it is. He sort of said, like, you might not know exactly what's going to happen in this particular moment, but the worst thing you could do is linger mm. or not get back fast enough or, you know, um, you know, or, or not be just hustling and or yeah. at a minimum, at a minimum, provide man on man defense. <laughs> that's like, that's done well. And so, you know, that sort of stuck with me because I think a similar thing is sort of true in a lot of our professional decisions. Yeah. Like it might not be the right decision, but once you make it, you should be sprinting in the direction of that decision that you just made, yeah. because at least you got to see it to its logical conclusion and, you know, find out if it was the right decision or, you know, find something else adjacent to that decision that pops up because you were working so hard and so that's, you might experience doubt, but make a decision with the best information you have at that time and then run, <laughs> like run towards that decision, run and throw yourself into executing that decision well. And you kind of can't go wrong if you do that. Yeah. I, I like that advice a lot. I, I'm going to, I'm going to take that. <laughs> I'm going to use it. <laughs> It's, you know, it's only good after you've made a thoughtful decision. So you can't, you can't sprint in all directions, okay. <laughs> but, but it is, um, but it is, yeah, it's, uh, it was a good pearl from, mm. uh, from my, from my soccer coach. I, I feel like our, our high school sports coaches have very formative impacts on our lives. That's uh, one of I my agree. theories. Did you, play, did you play high school sports? Uh, yeah, I played football and I wrestled in high school and it was oh, the wow. same coach actually for both sports. And he, he's definitely had a very formative impact on my life. <laughs> ah, wow. Yeah. That's great. Me and my friends joke about like how much he's impacted us because, you know, we still like, at least I still have dreams about like him and like my other friend also still has dreams about him. And it, it's like 10 years later 
you know, we're still kind of thinking about like these sports memories and it's really kind of shaped in a weird way. It's really shaped my professional life. It's kind of odd. <laughs> yeah, no, I think sports um, inculcate like in, the, in their best format, they inculcate a really healthy competitive streak. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, obviously I'm, we're kind of at Andrews and Horowitz, we're believers in sort of free market competition um, in a sense that's how, you know, the best startups will bloom um, is sort of, um, you know, is, is the core part of how entrepreneurship has propelled, you know, a lot of sectors forward. And so, and I think a lot of people actually, um, a lot of great founders have, have built a, com a healthy competitive streak at some point, right? It's like, there's a certain thrill in competing and winning, yeah. um, but you want to to figure out how to bring a team along with you while you do it and you want to figure out how to you know be collegial and mm -hmm. and collaborative because you know that ultimately to achieve something great probably multiple people will have to win and multiple players will have to win yeah. but um yeah, i agree sports is a really um is a really helpful analogy to a lot of entrepreneurship actually it's very well said about you know kind of being because it's not like the best player wins the it's always kind of like the best team you know Totally. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I'm, I'm also curious, are, are you still practicing clinical medicine these days or just at A16C? I do. I see patients one day a week um, at Stanford um, focused on cancer survivorship. So I see patients, um, I do primary care for uh, cancer patients um, treated at our cancer center at Stanford who have either completed the most acute phase of their therapy or on long-term maintenance therapy or have certain side effects related to their oncologic therapies um, that sort of provide provide um, both transitional primary care as well as long-term survivorship care. That's so cool. Wow. Wow. Um, or your future radiation patients, um, <laughs> you know, we think we think can benefit from really great survivorship care. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, these are just some closing questions that we ask everyone. Uh, I was wondering, uh, what do you think the future? Uh, well, I guess we already talked about this. Medicine and AI will will look like. Uh, maybe, hmm. How about what advice would you give to your like to you know med students who are kind of graduating soon? Yeah, like what advice? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I actually I think maybe this is not um, not as uh, not what you'd expect in terms of um, you know industry advice. But I actually think regardless of whether you want to build a career in academic medicine and community medicine and industry, I would really encourage you to learn from your patients. Um, for me. Uh, just personally, and I think for a lot of um, physician scientists or physician um, business colleagues as well, some of the kind of learnings that stick with you most are ultimately what a specific patient taught you or what the scenario around a specific patient's journey taught you. Mm. It could be that, you know, you learn that you really enjoy taking care of a certain set of patients, and that may that may guide your clinical specialization path. It may be that you really enjoy um, doing a certain type of you know, procedure and, and you learn from your experience with the patient. It may be that patients teach you what's missing um, and you might get frustrated about 
the path that a patient had to take to access care. You might feel frustrated about the fact that a certain therapy is only working so well for a certain patient. You might learn about a patient's financial toxicity. You might learn about um, how much ambiguity there is in our understanding of what to actually do about this, you know, about this patient's vexing condition. Whatever it is, for me, I, I often anchor to what I learn from patients, what they tell me, what's bothering them, what's not good enough, what's still, what's still suboptimal in their mm -hmm. care. Mm -hmm. And I think that'll propel you forward regardless of, um, of what you want to do. If you want to do better clinical care, great. If you want to build better software infrastructure around care delivery, great. If you want to work on therapeutics, diagnostics, great. Um, but, but learn from your patients. Mm -hmm. uh, I was hoping to ask a, a deeper, more personal question too. Uh, and I was wondering, uh, what, are, what are your biggest fears? <clears throat> what are my biggest fears? Um, let's see, what are your biggest fears? Um, You know, I think uh, <clears throat> medicine and healthcare are kind of really high stakes, right? Um, you have real patients, real families in front of you. <clears throat> and my biggest fear is that, you know, is that, and not just for something I work on or something that I collaborate on, but is that sort of the best of intentions may still produce unintended harm. <clears throat> I do think that's kind of my biggest fear for like our whole, our whole sector. It's, it's often like, it's what I felt that's most when I was, fears too. it's one of your fears that's too. One of my yeah. Big fears too. Yeah. Like I, I totally it's agree. It's really yeah. stressful. Right. Yeah. Um, and when you're training, I felt this as a resident, as a fellow, like, what if no matter how much we try, what if we're picking the wrong thing? Or sometimes we're making a decision where three options could all be reasonable, but we don't know. Um, I remember in fellowship, we had a patient who, a prostate cancer, a metastatic prostate cancer patient who developed DIC, which is a coagulative, a coagulopathy and with concomitant bleeding and coagulopathy and, um, you know, is a, is a, is a, is an oncologic emergency and it's really hard to treat. There are not great guidelines on whether yeah. you should actually treat with anticoagulation or vice versa yeah. Yeah. Um, with, um, you know, with, uh, with, with factor and, mm -hmm to improve a patient's ability to form clot. And it's, it's, that's, it's, a, it's a vicious biology that contributes to DIC or whether you should treat the underlying cancer, even in a really sick patient, should you give chemo and that kind of thing. And so I remember it was, it was a very vexing choice. We had limited data to go on to know what would ultimately work. In this particular case, we tried low dose anticoagulation you know, but it's like, it's one of those things that in that, in that particular case, the patient did recover and went home and it was a big sigh of oh, relief. Good, yeah. and I learned a lot from a lot of experts in the hematology field and, and so on. But I remember thinking like, first of all, can I please do a lookup of all the other prostate cancer patients that we've ever seen? And don't we have some data on this? I like found case reports and was poring over those 
And, you know, so whether it's, you know, in the development of a new therapeutic or whether it's in the development of new risk stratification tools and software, or whether it's, you know, in a research or clinical care delivery setting or while you're doing a procedure, I do think that's kind of a, a big fear is that even if in your, with your best intentions, if you somehow, you know, if we as a system cause patient harm, that's, that's really, um, that weighs heavily on, yeah. on most innovating in this in the field and so figuring out systems by which to mitigate that are are important yeah well, one quote that sticks out to me is uh you know the the road to hell is paved with good intentions and and i i always think about that quote like i don't really like the quote but then at the same time i'm like oh man like i see it you know i feel like sometimes like we try and improve things but then somehow we like accidentally make things worse or just we kind of un unintended or you know like you it's like a hydra head problem where you like slay the hydra head but then two more heads pop out um, and right, right. And sometimes uh, it's, it's related to providing too much care or too little care. And there's, there's so many levers that <clears throat> we might be imprecisely yeah. using. Uh, my, my last question that I'd like to ask is, uh, what gives your life meaning? Gives your life meaning. Um, well, I'd say it's, you know, the most proximal answer, um, I will say is is you know is a personal one. My two kids give me give my life a lot mm -hmm. of meaning. I'm I'm uh, you know give me a lot of joy, happiness, and um, you know reason to to feel to feel great that um, about the future. Frankly, you know um, you know and a lot of joy as a mother. So I will mm -hmm. say that's probably that's the most uh, near term uh, proximal mm -hmm. source of joy for me often. Um, but longer term, it's the other side of the fear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Opportunity to, despite fear, hopefully do something great for patients. Yeah. Um, and that could be something as simple as talking to a patient who's lonely and feeling like, wow, I, I really feel like I helped that patient find, you know, a shoulder to lean on today, or it could be contributing to technology that I think is really going to change um, the standard of care, as we talked about. So, you know, for me, patient impact at the, you know, the broadest yeah. level uh, gives my professional life meaning. And, um, but don't forget to optimize and, you know, make sure you're paying attention to your personal health and personal life mm. too. Well, Dr. Agarwala, thanks. Thank you so much for coming on today's show. It was really an honor and a privilege to speak with you. It was very inspiring too. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me on. And I look forward to listening to more episodes of the Mammal Podcast. Thank you. <laughs>